Hello everyone Hi. and welcome back to the 11th episode of the Hour Corner podcast. I'm of course joined by my co-host Joe. Hello everyone. I'm of course, uh, I'm again joined by a guest. Our guest is a very different one from any other one. It's not about YouTube and it's not about social media. But to introduce him, if, if you guys don't know who the late Sir Jimmy Savile, OBE, was he was an English DJ, television and radio personality who hosted BBC shows including Top of the Pops and Jim Will Fix It and over five more. He raised an estimated £40 million for charities and during his lifetime was widely praised for, for and as a fundraiser. His, his show, Jim Will Fix It, would mass upwards of 15 million views on a Saturday night and others not trailing too far behind. Rubbing shoulders with, big, with some of the biggest people on the planet Jimmy Savile was internationally known star. There was a lot more to this British icon than met the eye. After dying at the age of 84, this gave over 450 people the opportunity and trigger to speak about alleged grooming and sexual assault to young audience members and more. Today, we are honoured to be joined by a two-time Royal Television and BAFTA nominee, criminologist and author, Mark Williams Thomas. Good evening. Good evening, lads. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to come on. This is uh, certainly very different to what I normally do, but I'm um, yeah. yeah, fantastic. So shall I tell you a little bit about how I got involved with it? And then you yeah. can ask questions away. Um, yeah. So yeah, my you... background is I'm a former police officer. So I left school, went into the police, and that's really where I, I spent most of my time until I came out and became a investigative reporter. So I now work mm. across the television networks. You probably may well have seen some of my work on ITV, which is mainly where I work, but I also have a crime series on Netflix. And as part of one of the investigations I did, I looked at Jimmy Savile. Um, yeah. And, you know, as you introduced very clearly there, Joe, Jimmy Savile is a, was a very well-known celebrity. In the 1980s, he was probably the biggest celebrity that appeared on television. And back in those days, there was only two television channels. There was ITV and BBC. So yeah. that was before Channel 5, before uh, Channel 4, and obviously before the other platforms, Sky, Amazon, and Netflix. So if you could imagine all the people that would now watch all across the different channels, they're all watching just two channels. And the main channel, of course, being BBC, BBC One, BBC Two. So when we have audiences now that watch television programmes, we talk about them in the millions. You know, four or five million is a good audience. In those days, they were picking up audiences of 15, 20 million people per night. Phenomenal. And that yeah. is how big a celebrity he was. And he got away with it for years and years and years. And that was until I did an investigation on him, looking at him as an offender in 2013 or 2012. My investigation lasted about a year where I looked into whether or not he was a child sex offender. Got lots of people to talk to me, uh, which wasn't easy. It's never easy getting people to talk to you. And I always split it into kind of like three categories. So there's three categories of people talking to you uh, when you're in the media. So the first category is talking to you in the newspaper because people can be anonymous. They don't get seen. They don't have to have a photograph taken of you. They can give you information and you can print it. The second one is radio. And of course, on radio, you don't have to be seen. You can just use your voice. And then the third one, which is the most difficult and the hardest for people to do, which is television, because, of course, you visually yeah. need to see the person. So they're they're kind of like visually outing themselves to be identified. And so to get people to come on the program and give up their identity to be seen by the public is a big thing. Anyway, we managed to convince five, six people to do that. And slowly we started to make this program, which wasn't easy. You know, you're having to convince people, very senior executives, senior you know, adults who've worked in the field of television for a long time, that the right thing to do is to make a program to expose Jimmy Savile for the child sex offender that he was. Yeah. And of course, so many people still knew him for the celebrity that he was. And he was yeah. very litigious. And by that, I mean, he would sue a lot of people. So if you um, if you said something about him or you wrote about him, he would instruct his lawyers to write to you, to threaten you 
that he would take you to court and take money off you for saying these things. Yeah. So people didn't talk out about him. They kept quiet, even though there was quite a lot of people that knew things. Plus also in those days, it was very difficult to be believed. Things have changed massively now, but in those days it was quite difficult to come forward and make an allegation that you've been abused and be believed, particularly when you were talking about someone as famous as he was. Yeah. And we did the program and the program went out and the feedback of it was quite phenomenal really because literally in the space of about 48 hours we'd managed to turn people's opinion right on its head and they were now being very supportive and what I mean is that so prior to the program going out in the months prior to it there was a lot of criticism being applied to me saying well why are you making a program about someone who can't defend themselves because he died by that stage and and all I was saying well watch the program Mm -hmm. and make up your own mind and then in the days in about 48 hours both before and after the media so the newspapers who were covering the story because we did quite a bit of pre-publicity came out on our side because people started to come forward and say well actually I've got a story to tell you something's happened to me or I know about something and as a result of that it got momentum of a supporting nature of our program and then the program went out and the and the aftermath was in essence it caused massive uproar in both the UK and abroad where he was known because people for the first time were saying well there's clear evidence that this man is a or was a child sex offender how did he get away with it for so long and those were some of the questions that then started to come out and i think in terms of the impact it it is probably the biggest television program that's happened in the last few decades that has changed the way uh, policies procedures happen it's led to an awful lot more people coming forward and talking about abuse. And I think it's also changed the way that television programs can make a difference. And the media is a very interesting thing. I and mean, I'm sure it'd be interesting what you think about the day-to-day media is and what media you follow. But over the years, yeah. it kind of changed. You know, obviously in the early days, it was just BBC and ITV. Then it became newspapers. It's now very much more online. But the the outlets now that are available are so many more. And I and I don't think somebody like Jimmy Savile would have been able to continue with his offending in the in today's environment, because there are so many more outlets for people to say things. You know, like this now. If you had a if you knew that he was offending or you wanted to talk about it you would be able to do it to a degree you know you could still potentially end up being sued by him but you could talk about it whereas in those days there was no outlet to talk about it other than a newspaper or on television and they weren't going to touch it because of how powerful he was Mm. so would you say it was his um his power and fame that shielded him from these allegations to get caught for it Absolutely, Sam. Yeah, no, absolutely. He's, if you can imagine, it's quite difficult to kind of like put him into what kind of context of a state as a person he is today. Um, but I, you know, I don't make an analogy because, so, so Simon Cowell, I know Simon Cowell very well. I make television programs with Simon Cowell. Simon Cowell is obviously a very well-known celebrity. Um, Piers Morgan's a very well-known celebrity. You know, the, the, the power that Jimmy Savile had was probably even more than them. Yeah. Uh, and so that, yeah. that gives you the status that he had. He was also very well connected, as you said at the very beginning, Joe, you know, he was connected with the royal family. Every single person who could benefit him, he would get to know. You know, not just in terms of people who were a benefit on the outside, but also in prison. I mean, he had a very bizarre uh, ability to connect with people from all walks of life you know he, he ended up becoming a, a key holder so he had the the keys for the cells at Broadmoor prison which houses some of the most dangerous yeah. offenders 
in the country and he was able to walk around there with a set of keys this is an incredible man and i think it's it's quite hard perhaps to put him into context and obviously sam and joe you've both done a bit of research around him and you probably can but for your listeners to put him into the context of how powerful he was think of probably the most powerful person with the exception of the queen and the pope and that was him i think um in many ways like sam like the question sam asked if he's shielded when i said that he like he was bumping around with the biggest of the biggest and like it's so sad to say that he's smart but like the connections and uh, networking that he did and made were ridiculous like you said he he found all these different things in all these different ways and it's it confuses me and through the whole um, research of everything I kept saying to Sam Sam, this really confuses me. How did he get away with it all? He got away with it all while he was alive. People knew and it got shut down. People knew and it got shut down. And it was, in my opinion, yet again, definitely because of his um, his fame and his popularity because um, he, he was walking around next to royalty, government, and the yet again, the biggest people, and no one had a clue. Yeah, and I think you make some very valid points there, Jan. I think the problem with it was, was that one, he was alongside very, very famous, high-profile individuals. And therefore, he could say, well, these are the, my friends, and therefore, I've got a, an air of respectability. So mm-hmm. because he was associated with those people, he was therefore connected as well. They wouldn't have a relationship or a friend who was a sex offender, would they? So therefore, he, he created that kind of like that blanket of, of acceptability. But there is also that point that I make about how one can voice your concerns. So in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, you, the, the Internet wasn't around in the way that it is now. And in fact, it wasn't even around in the very early past. So when people can write blogs or they can write stories online, they can tell other people and those messages can get out social media facebook twitter all of those platforms never existed if they existed today then his offending would have ended up being talked about other people would talk about it but it wasn't in those days so in a way the fact that things have opened up from a media point of view from a platform social media the internet makes it harder for somebody like him to get away with it for so long. Um, yeah. You say things, so you say individual people who knew wouldn't do anything in fear of being like prosecuted and sued for it. But there was a lot of people high up in like the BBC, which he worked for, that did have suspicions or at least know, or, uh, know about it. Do you think they didn't speak out on like fear of loss of reputation or do you think it was just fear of being sued? I think probably both of those, Sam. I think there was definitely a fear of, so there was, so I explain this in a number of different ways. So I kind of say there's three types of people. There's the one type of people who had a lot of contact with him, clearly knew that he was an offender, but just weren't able to say anything because no one would believe them. Yeah. So those types of people are the nurses that knew him at Stoke Mandeville Hospital, at Leeds Hospital, the people who worked with him from a junior point of view at the BBC or at tele- other television companies. So those are the people that knew what was going on. They had a lot of information, but they there was nobody they could talk to because nobody would believe them and no one would listen to them because you're talking about such a famous person. You've then got the other people who were who were more senior, who, who had suspicions, who knew what was going on, but they weren't high enough to make a difference, but they did pass it on to other people. Mm. So you've got the kind of like the middle management people who passed it on to people, passed on their concerns and hoped that people would do something about it. And then you've got the yeah. third people and they're the people that the middle people pass the information on to. And those are the ones that did nothing about it. So yeah. they literally just either covered it up or 
believed that actually it probably wasn't going on or it was too difficult to manage. Don't forget, none of the organisations to which Savile worked for would have wanted some kind of, of massive story going on about their, uh, their abuse taking place by their indivi the individual that they've got there. So the BBC never wanted a scandal that their highest paid celebrity was abusing children. So therefore they had to cover that up. The other organizations he worked for, which were obviously very high profile organizations, also never wanted that scandal. So you've got suppression coming from the very top, meaning that anybody else below couldn't speak out and wouldn't be listened to. And then you've got newspapers. So there was a number of newspapers who over the years had people come to them to report, to say things about them. But they never made any reports because for them, it was yeah. not in their interest at that time to do them. Because what they would do is they would, and it happens in a way today, they would do a deal with Savile or Savile's team to not say something on the basis that he would give them a story. Mm. And of course, that would help then sell the papers. So, and that happens in a way today, you'll find stories in the newspapers today and you wonder, well, where's that come from? And that might have been a planted story to stop the newspaper reporting on something else about that individual. Yeah. So um, did you personally, um, like my interpretation of what you've said is that he was huge as you, yeah, you said, did you watch him yourself? I did actually as I grew up I you know people often people said to me afterwards you know firstly I'd never met him actually but they'd say to me you know do you have a problem with him at the time and I no I mean I was a young lad growing up you're the same age as you two I would watch him on a Saturday he would be on Saturday afternoon I think around five or six o'clock Jim will fix it uh, and that was a massive massive program on a Saturday night I mean I don't know what the viewing figures but they were they were in the tens of millions, you know, probably 10 to 15 million watching it on a Saturday night, which is colossal. And he had a huge, huge following. He was a very, I mean, I don't even think at the time I thought anything of him. He was just a, a TV celebrity and I didn't pay a great deal of attention. When I started looking at him as far as investigating, so back in 2011, I remember my colleague, my producer saying to me, you know, do you, do you know anything about him? You know, what do you think about him? I said, you know, I don't. I said, he's now, when I look back, he seems to be an incredibly eccentric, weird person who you probably mm. wouldn't want around your children. But that's only in hindsight, knowing what I know around child abuse and being in the police. But at the time, no. I mean, he was a, he was a convincing man. And this is what happens with sex offenders, child sex offenders. You know, they're not the stranger that sits on the park bench that looks very weird because yeah, children yeah. won't go near that type of person. What they do is they go to someone who gives them some confidence, who can flatter them, who can provide them with things, who gives them some benefit. They're the people that children go to. And that is what Jimmy Savile was. He had a massive aura around him and children went there because of course he had a celebrity status he could get you on television he might even give you some gifts you know and, and for many of these young children again their parents they were there because their parents made the contact made the approach saw him as such a celebrity status so if you put all of that together he had everything to make it easy for him to commit his offenses i think um as well, so trying to understand. So I was trying to understand what what you did, and I watched a, f a few different documentaries. Um, one that you did being the exposure of Jimmy Savile. Um, and then I went and spoke to my dad. Um, when I told him that we are having you on, he goes, "I wrote, I wrote to Jim, fix it." And that that really like solidified how popular he was, because my mum and dad grew up in polar opposite ends of the country. And my mum wrote to him and my mum's sister wrote to him and my dad's family wrote to him. It was, he was supposedly so huge. And my dad said, watch an episode of Jim will fix it. He said, forget that he's a um, sex offender and watch an episode. Um, and I watched it and 
the way my dad described it is uh, it said he said before all these um this evidence came out people viewed him as a all year round santa claus mm. he would give you what you want yeah. week in week out mm. but obviously there was a lot more going on behind the scenes so you said about um so when you were growing up before he uh when did you make the documentary so the documentary is 2012 and um, when and was so it he was, died so he died 2011 i think 2011 so literally just before so how long had you had suspicions of like jimmy savile being a a sex offender prior to any business or films or documentaries that you made on him so I had no idea about him being a sex offender. So I, I'm going. So 2011, I go over to um, where do I go to France to do a program for BBC Newsnight, do a, a report for them. And on the way back on the plane, the producer who was my producer because I was the presenter, he was the producer. The producer said to me, "Have you ever heard?" about Jimmy Savile being a child sex offender. And I went, no, no, not at all. I said, he's a weird man, but I haven't heard any reports about him. And he said, well, have a look at these bits online. There's a load about him as being a child sex offender. Yeah. And it was that that was the first time that I became aware. I then looked online and, and I finished my program and then got caught up with some other work and programs and things. And, and it was only then when he died that uh, my producer said, you know basically let's make a program and then obviously i went to itv and we made the program with itv but prior to that no i'd never heard anything he he wasn't you know i'm in telly now and that's my life now but in those days you know i i didn't you know I, i'd watch him on the saturday night but my saturdays were pretty exhausting because i played rugby so i would play yeah. rugby and then come home and i might sit and watch it for a you know, half an hour or something but I didn't used to watch much telly probably until I was about 20 because you know I played rugby every Saturday and and Sunday so I didn't really watch much telly it was only obviously as a, a later life as I'd grown up when I do the investigation that I then expose him which I suppose in a way is quite good because I didn't really know that much about him other than he was a massive star. I mean, everybody knew. If you talk to you talk to your mum and dad and Sam, I don't know if you've mentioned it to your yeah, parents my or mom family. Told but... me how yeah, so they so... Uh, how big he was. Go on. Yeah, I mean, you talk to any parents and they'll they'll go. Do you know what he is a he was a massive massive star. But as I said at the mm. beginning, you know, there was only two television networks, which was BBC and ITV, yeah. and he was on the main one, which was ITV. Sorry, BBC. So do you think, so when you went to the, uh, when you went to ITV, yeah. um, obviously ITV and BBC, for people that don't know, if you're not from um, the United Kingdom, they are complete rivals in television. Absolutely. They are both the biggest uh, television networks, ITV and BBC. Um, do you, what do you think about how ITV took it on? Because there was a lot of, um, I think, cancel culture towards BBC because the fact that some people knew and it was chucked under the covers, it was yeah. it was thrown away and not heard of from that person. Um, I remember in one of the documentaries, someone walked in on him with a girl on his lap um, doing what he was doing. Um, with He was just pretty much fondling around with her without obviously her wanting to. Uh, wanting him to and she was only 12 or 13 and this girl this this uh member of staff ends up reporting it yeah. and she was then told to just be quiet i mean and, she was in our program that obviously that story yeah. was in our program and i think yeah. the you know the bbc and itv as you say are massive rivalries they're the two biggest broadcasters in the uk and they when the bbc wouldn't run the program you know i went to itv and said to itv because obviously my relationship was is was then and and has always been really with itv and uh, and i said to them no yeah let's make this program and there was a lot of concern there was a lot of worry because you know, effectively you were going to take on a very very famous person and, and accuse them of being a child sex offender mm. and so there was a real risk around that 
Um, there was a risk for me because, you know, as a result of that, if I'd have got it wrong, they would never have put me on telly again, you know, because I'd have got that wrong. But, you know, I was determined that the evidence and what I knew and what I was finding out was true. And I think ITV were very bold to, to do mm. and to make the programme. And don't forget, the, the, so there's a very different process for ITV and BBC. So BBC is publicly funded. So all your television license that you pay, parents pay, goes to the BBC. You know, and so there's a fund that money that comes into the BBC effectively from the public, from government and public, whereas ITV is all privately financed, financed through adverts and, and, and in essence through that and selling programmes, etc. So they're not a public service broadcaster, which is what the BBC is. And when yeah. we made the programme, one of the very clear things that came out of it was that it was very good that ITV made a programme that should have been made by the public service broadcaster. But of course, for them to have done it, they'd have been criticising their own people. And that was something they weren't prepared to do. I remember we wrote to the, so the, the boss of the, the BBC is called the Director General. And we wrote to the Director General when we were making the programme and said, look, give me an interview so I can put these allegations to you. And he refused. He refused to give us an interview. Actually, then as the programme or the programme goes out and then the fallout of the programme, it did result in the Director General losing his job, which was a massive, massive thing to happen. So the impact and the fallout was huge and the BBC handled it very very badly yeah um so obviously you say you work straight out of school as a police officer you've probably seen quite a lot in this area and others would you say this is one of the worst like cases of like be someone being a child predator or a child exploitation that you've seen Yes, I mean, I've dealt with a lot over my years in the police and, and obviously in the programmes I've made since. I've made a number of programmes about you know, child sex offenders. I made one with the Metropolitan Police called To Catch Paedophile, where we went, went and um, filmed those people that were grooming children online. Um, and I made a number of other programmes. But this programme was the biggest and it was the biggest because it had the biggest impact. And of course, it had the most victims. You know, yeah. When in excess of four, you know, 500 victims of Jimmy Savile, which is phenomenal. You know, it's an awful lot of people. And so it certainly had the biggest impact. I think it was the biggest, it's the biggest case that I've ever dealt with in terms of the amount of work that was required for it. I've dealt with other cases where there's been you know, 40, 50, 100 victims, but not on this scale. And as and, a, and for a longest period, he did. You know, he was offending for so long, but also um, there was also this process where he was um, offending against a lot of different people. So most offenders will offend in a certain age bracket. So they may yeah. have an interest between, you know, say, young boys or young girls between certain ages, whereas Savile offended both to get both against males and females but very interestingly between young and old mm. what was it like so you've met how many was it six seven um of these victims of so we, we, put six, we put five or six on the program but in total over the my whole investigation i probably met something like or spoke to 50 or 60 maybe 70 so yeah. a lot. So what was it? Is that yeah, like you said, that's a lot of people and your name's clearly quite known. What's that what's that like? Um what's it like knowing uh that you've have sat down with someone who has been um I don't know what the word would be, uh, some Victim some raped and um and yeah. some yeah just horrible, horrible things. Uh what was it like meeting these number of victims so obviously i over the years i've met lots of victims victims of all kinds of abuse from sexual abuse physical abuse and obviously i've also spoken to an awful lot of people who have lost loved ones who have been murdered it's 
speaking to family mm. members, mums, dads. And I think one of the things that, of course, is is clear across all of those is they're all going through real trauma. They're all mm. a very difficult time in their life. And what's really important for me is firstly that they feel confident and safe to talk to me, to reassure them that yeah. what they're telling me is, you know, is I will deal with in the right way and I'll be sensitive to. And to be honest with them, it's really important that when you talk to people, that if they're particularly if they're going to open up and talk to you about things, that they know what you're going to do with that information and what the purpose of it is. And to listen. You know, one of the greatest things that that we all have is the ability to use our ears. But sadly, few of us do that. The large majority of people prefer to use their mouth and talk. Whereas listening yeah. makes a big difference to people's lives. You don't need to give them a comment. You don't, you don't need to say anything. You just, just listen. And sometimes that's all they want to be heard, mm. to be listened to. And so every single person who's a victim that I spoke to in relation to Savile or any of those, it's about giving them the time, giving them the confidence to talk, tell, reassure them what I'm going to do with that information and to help them, you know, genuinely help them because the last thing I want to do is for them to tell me something that makes it worse for them. And in some cases, it may well be that I get them the help, whether that be, you know, for many of the victims who came forward in relation to the Jimmy Savile case, I would pass them on to the police and then the police would interview them, speak to them and provide them the support and help that the police now very have, you know, have it very well structured within their, their service. Uh, or it may well be that I gave them help pass them into some of the charities, the NSPCC or the NAPAC, the uh, uh, adult offenders or people who've been offended against as children in adulthood. So there's lots of charities now that can support those people. Um, but they're, you know, these are damaged people you're talking to who've been through an awful lot. Um, so obviously you have personal experiences with victims and the family of victims. Have you ever had any personal experiences with people like the offenders that made you feel like obligated to make these programs to help other people absolutely i mean i every program i make i make for a reason so i do it because i care and because i think there's value to doing it so when i made the program about jimmy savile it was obviously to expose him but likewise i've been into prisons i've sat in prisons where uh, individuals have talked to me about their offending behavior in the most horrific way where they've murdered children they've murdered adults they've talked about their offending and um, what I've tried to do in those circumstances is take that away and use it for the benefit to educate and to help protect other people to keep safe so at the moment you know I'm making a number of programs I've got one on ITV I'm making and one for channel five and those programs are about trying to there are uh, murder investigations. It's about trying to get the truth out there and help either solve the case or get answers for the case. And in each and every one of the cases I do and whoever I speak to, it is about making a difference. And I've spoken to murderers, I've spoken to you know, uh, child sex offenders. And, and it, it always is, always at the forefront of my mind is, what is the purpose of what I'm doing and what is the value of it? And if there's no point in doing it, if it's just to be sensational, if it's just to, you know, to simply put it back on channel again, I'll tell you, I won't do it. You know, I have a really mm. moral compass. I have to do something that has a benefit, a benefit to society or a benefit to the individuals that it relates to. And, and we know the, how powerful the media is. We know that the, as a result of the programs that I do, people come forward with new information and does very often help us find new information and evidence. Um, so how did it, with multiple of these um, victims and um, especially with the Jimmy Savile and anything else you've done, because um, for listeners and our audience, it isn't just Jimmy Savile, you're, as I said, a two-time BAFTA nominee. You've clearly done a lot. Um, how did it feel knowing that you gave multiple, multiple victims the chance to have a voice and possibly like take that that weight 
that they're carrying on their shoulders from what happened um, that could have been there for literal decades. I think, you know, as you grow up and you face all kinds of challenges in life, and it's about how you deal with those, really. It's about being able to compartmentalize. And by that, I mean, in life, depending on the jobs you do, you'll experience things that are quite upsetting and quite sad. And obviously, as a police officer, I came across a lot of that. And because of the lines of work I worked in as a police officer, which was child abuse and murders, it meant that I came across a lot of sad things. And what I had to do is be able to separate those things from my day to day life. So that was work. And then in my other life, which was my family or my enjoyment, which was rugby or or sport, then I wouldn't be thinking about my work thing. But what it enabled me to do is to therefore provide the best the best support to those people who were suffering. Because what ends up happening is I can come in and I can be detached. Of course it upsets me and I take it very personally in terms of helping these people, but I'm not, it doesn't directly relate to me. So it's not personal to me. I can then help them get some clarity, help them through a situation. And there aren't many situations now that I couldn't help somebody through. I've, I've been through so many of those scenarios the abductions, murders, child abuse, the whole lot I've, I've done with people. I've helped people through those scenarios. And what's really important is to be able to, to keep that support. And of course, if it affects me too much, I can't, I won't be able to do my job and I can't do my job, but it does upset me. You know, every family I work with who suffers a loss, you know, that's a, that's upsetting, but I, what I have to do is to be able to be detached from that in so much as provide them the support, but, but still be engaged with them and help them through those most difficult scenarios, which unfortunately there are far too many people out there who live in silence, who live with anguish and pain. And I've got, I've got a platform, you know, I've got my Netflix programs, The Investigator, I've got uh, ITV This Morning, who obviously I do uh, lots of um, crime stuff for. I have uh, programs you know, are on YouTube and, and ITV. I've got a program on Amazon. So that all those programs being out there is about trying to help and give those people who don't have a voice a voice. Um, obviously, here and in the documentaries, you do sound very calm and like talking about this very professionally. But have you ever had any anything you've reported on or researched where in your head, like you're you're like almost worried about what happened? So, so I give a very calm. So my exterior is incredibly calm. So the most difficult scenarios. So if I have, if I run an operation, so whether that was being in the police or now, say I say I'm running an operation, I do a program called um, uh, uh, On the Run, where I catch wanted criminals. So this might be somebody who's wanted by the police. And I, it's called On the Run. So I might run an operation with a number of undercover people with the police to catch somebody. And, and that might become really, really complicated and very stressful, but I will be incredibly calm. You know, my whole nature, my experience allows me to be, remain very calm, whatever the scenario is. You know, even if I'm dealing with a, a critical situation, I will be very calm. That doesn't mean to say that inside me, there's an awful lot going on that's much, much more uh, stressed and much more anxious, but my exterior, because it's really important if I'm leading a team or if I've got people who are looking up to how I respond, if I've completely lost it, and there are an awful lot of people in those positions who are who do lose it, that's not the signal I want to give out. If I was running an operation with you two, I'd want you to feel absolutely in control of what you're doing but also know that what i'm telling you to do is is right and you're doing yeah. it for the right reason and i'm and i'm in control of this there's no chance of it even going wrong because i've thought of all the scenarios so i think there is a real yeah. process in terms of being calm having that confidence and and being able to to lead people to do the right thing have you um 
you may have like sort of answered it, but just to like solidify it, you say that you spoke to um people who have is it people who have been abducted or people who have abducted? So I've been p- spoken to people who have been abducted and also to offenders who have abducted children. Yes. Um. So, and murderers and uh, the yeah. families and yeah. So have you ever been scared while speaking to someone who has offended or have you ever not necessarily scared, but um, almost freaked out a bit or a bit like, Goosebumps or something. There are there have there have been situations that I've been in where I've been slightly scared. You, you won't see me scared, but I am scared. I've been in Thailand where I was threatened. I've been in uh, Malaysia where I had the triads who were monitoring what I was doing in in Malaysia whilst I was investigating a a, um, a suspicious death over there. I've had death threats. I've had uh, child abuse material sent to me. I've had a petrol bomb sent to me. So, you know, I've had all of those things. And I don't say those in a way to scare anybody and say, look, you know, don't don't do what I do. But I live in a in a fairly dangerous world at times. You know, these are these are some of these are quite nasty criminals and I have to protect myself. So I put in place things to make I'm to make sure I'm safe as I can be. And obviously, I'm very aware of my surroundings. You know, being ex-police, I know in a way how to look after myself and protect myself. You know, in today's world, it's much easier. You know, cameras, CCTV, alarms. You know, have all of those things. Yeah. So, um, on programs, you seem like you've done shed tons, and you seem very um, open to hear stories of both sides with um the victim and the offender um in those scenarios do you have to like hold your opinion in so if you if you think something and they're saying something do you have to hold that opinion in sometimes sometimes yeah i mean it's if i'm talking to an offender and i want the offender to tell me something and in order for them to tell me something, it helps me solve a case or get answers. Then I'll bite my tongue and I won't say something and I'll just listen. Uh, and that's really important. Yeah. And that's a really important thing to learn in life because sometimes it, it it's best to say nothing and just listen and take it on board. And I'll do that. Uh, there are other times when people need to be challenged. And yeah. you know, my, my program I'm making at the pro- moment for ITV, which will be out in, in the summertime, you know, there's some really difficult challenges that I get, I give to the people who are under suspicion of murder. You know, I ask them some really, really difficult questions. And I think sometimes that needs to be done, but you'll, you'll find me ask it in such a way that most of the time, probably 99% of the time, the person will answer because I ask it in such a calm kind way albeit it might be a very difficult question that most people will answer because most people like talking yeah i suppose there's that they'll talk to prove their innocence aspect of it um it seems more suspicious if they don't talk very often sam you're right people will talk because they like to fill the gap Mm. if you sit in a room with people and uh, you start talking and then you go silent more often than not someone will fill that space fill that gap and they'll start yeah. talking you can use those techniques when you interview people to get them to talk and if they are have done something wrong you know for example that Stuart Hazel who murdered Tia Sharp uh, and I had the exclusive interview with him just prior to his arrest and I clearly knew he was he had to be the killer but I, and I got an exclusive interview with him. You know, I just wanted him to talk. I just wanted him to tell me everything that he had done for the last 24 hours, because I knew that ultimately that would get picked over by the police and that would lead to some information coming out. And ultimately, of course, he was responsible for killing Tia Sharp, but he was sat and gave me an interview, which went on to the national six and 10 o'clock ITV news. He was talking, you know, he was talking to a killer. And if you haven't watched it, it's on YouTube. Do watch it. 
it's an interview with uh, Stuart Hazel. Uh, and you'll find it quite fascinating because I literally just get him to talk to me. I ask him a number of questions to clarify certain things, but that was his downfall. So um, when you said, you said that these questions, there's some questions that you ask that are tough, but you've got to ask because otherwise, um, I think in a way, if there's a gap of silence for a person that could know that they're wrong, they could just be thinking of all the things that the other person's thinking. And you said that you sometimes do have to ask that very, very tough question. So what, what is, what do you view like a really tough question to ask a, a murderer or a, um, someone who's abducted someone? Well, I mean, of course, the most difficult one of all of those is, did you do it? You know, are you a killer? Are you, you know, have you, you know, have you abused that person? What have you done to them? But you see, I, the key to asking a question is to already know the answer because if you ask someone a question you know the answer and yeah. if they don't give you the answer right you can drill down on what you know now there are sometimes and i do do it sometimes i speculative ask people a question hoping that they think i know the answer so so that so the skill is to it's all but so i suppose it's a bit like playing poker the skill is to think to make the person you're interviewing think mm. you already know the answer to the question you're asking all right so for example i would say to them right so tell me about what you did when you picked up such and such because i know but i want to hear it in your words okay now, i might not know mm. and then they'll tell me and then i might say something to them which i know a little bit about so tell me what you did at six o'clock, because that's an important time, isn't it? And they might think, oh, is it? OK, so I'm informing them or giving them little snippets of information, which makes them think I know what I'm talking about. Now, hopefully most of the time I will do, because it's important that when I go into an interview, I'm properly prepared and I know most of what the person's going to tell me. But there are times when I go into interview people and I don't know the answer and yeah, <clears throat> because most people are not very good at being interviewed they find it very difficult and i'm an incredible you know, i will really will pin you down when i interview you most people will talk to me and open up and the amount of people i've interviewed who have admitted things because of that technique <coughs> yeah so yeah. exposing a a sex offender in this in this example I'll use is like Jimmy Savile. Um, you'll get a lot of mixed reactions from it. Did you get anything from, like, from the BBC or anyone in that sort of area of work that was quite, like, surprising? Would you say? Well, I haven't done a I haven't made a television program for the BBC since two thousand and twelve. Um having exposed Jimmy Savile so I don't know maybe that speaks volumes itself but I think by and large the it was a new watch and by that what what I mean is that there were new people at the BBC compared to when Savile was there yeah. so uh, yeah. they were very supportive and actually <coughs> I've got some very good friends at the BBC's and other networks and there's some amazing people there so you can't mm. tar everybody with that brush I think there was an yeah. institution senior management level at the BBC who totally failed in their managing a, a very dangerous and risky situation, i.e. Mm. the publicity that came out of the programme. Um, but that was just ignorance and naivety, I think, rather than anything deliberate. Uh, so the, the yeah. general feedback I think I've had from people is overwhelmingly positive now you're not gonna not everyone's gonna like you you know not everybody likes me you know i'm a, I'm a very kind genuine person but not everyone likes me and, and unfortunately that's the way of life you know one of the things i learned very early on is don't read the internet yeah you know i'm sure in part of your research you probably looked at some of the stuff on the internet i mean my name's all over the internet you know there's masses and masses and masses a wikipedia page loads and loads of stuff about me and, and and understandably so i've done an awful lot uh in terms of programs and reports and articles etc but there's an awful lot of horrible stuff that people write 
So you have to kind of grow a little bit of a, a rhinoceros skin for those types of people. It still upsets me. You know, if people write some stuff and really nasty stuff, sometimes that does get to me, particularly if you perhaps you're feeling tired or, you know, you, you're not on top of your game as much and, and you're a bit fed up. But by and large, you know, sadly, you just have to turn the other cheek to those people. What's the worst ever interview you've ever done? And what was it? Yeah. The worst one. Um, I don't know if I've got a worst interview. I mean, I, there's a there's a number of interviews. I think the interview with Stuart Hazel, where I knew he was a killer, but I just couldn't I couldn't crack him. I didn't expect to crack him. I just wanted him to tell me everything that I could then give to the police. Yeah. And actually, in a way, it probably worked because he did end up getting arrested and he did end up going to to jail for 37 years. You know, and and at the trial at the Old Bailey, so the biggest court in in the country. At the trial, my yeah. program, my interview played at the beginning of the trial of the Old Bailey. So that's quite a significant thing. Yeah. I think, you know, I went over to, to um, yeah, I interviewed a guy in India who is currently on trial for murder. And he was a very awkward individual. He didn't admit to the murder, but he did admit to, to being there, having found the body of the murder uh, victim. It was undoubtedly him. He stabbed her, you know, probably I think over 50 times. So it was I interviewed him. I got into jail to see him. I've done some interviews of sex offenders in other countries where I remember once I went to Cambodia and did an interview of a sex offender in Cambodia. And, and there was a there was a fair risk that the individual that I was interviewing potentially could have uh, could have you know, become quite aggressive. And I interviewed, yeah. I caught one guy once who was on the run and he was wanted for firearms offences and he he threatened me and said, I'm going to come and get you when I get out of prison. Um, so I suppose whoever, I've interviewed so many people and I have to say, I don't think that not one interview jumps out to me as being you know, a difficult one. They all have their merit in their own ways. And I think yeah. I love, I love interviewing people. You know, it yeah. is my it is the creme de la creme of what I do. You know, I love the investigation. I love pulling all the evidence together, but I love getting into a room and interviewing someone because there are not many people that I interview that I can't either get new information from, find stuff out or hold them to account. There's an awful lot of people on television who interview people who are really bad interviewers. The key to interviewing is listen, reflect what people are telling you so when you say something to me i write reflect that back to you and by reflecting it back to you you'll give me a bit more information so if you were to tell me something i might repeat that back to you and you'll then add a little bit onto the end of it yeah it's a really good way of getting more information from people but there's real skills to interviewing and i think as journalists it's probably one of the poorest skills that people have so everyone, thank you for watching this episode or listening on any streaming platform. Thank you, Mark, for coming on. My pleasure. Um, we appreciate that this is probably quite a, um, a deep, but very interesting episode, and we hope you all did enjoy it, and we will see you next week with another, with another episode.